Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum 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 So welcome to episode 119. We are back. We're back, babies. We're back from vacation. <laughs> yeah. Jen, I have to say, there was a moment there when I thought you may not come back. I wasn't going to. <laughs> I wasn't going to, but legally, I had to bring my children back <laughs> to the state in which they live. <laughs> no. That's why your stuff's here. That. My dog's here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my job is here. Right. Your house. I'm yeah. here. Yeah. You're Damn here. It. <laughs> exactly. I know. It was hard. To, um, we had the best time. Portland was so beautiful and amazing. Um, yeah. And it was great to see my friend Kristen and her um, husband, Matt, and kids. And um, it was great. My kids had a great time and they're, they're like begging me to move there, but I have to keep like telling them like, the thing is like, even if we move there, you still have to go to school. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was a vacation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so easy to like, you know, have like four or five days off in a new city and be like, wow. This place is fun get- every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like when people come visit because it's like, Oh, this is what we could be doing right. in this town that we will never do. Uh, yeah, I loved when people came to New York, you know, because I'm like, how oh, awesome! We're doing all the tourist things that we never, never. Yeah, do. the only yeah. thing I hate is when people come to Atlanta and they want to go to the Coke Museum. Like, people God, want to go to the Coke Museum. Damn it! <laughs> it's like that. The Coke Museum. Just so you guys know, if you're ever traveling to Atlanta, skip it. Yeah, <laughs> pass. Skip it. Hard pass. Sorry, Coca Cola. I mean, unless you want to sponsor us, I can gladly change my opinion yeah. of the museum. But it's it's just like it's just boring. And then there's a level where people get that's where everyone wants to get to is the sample floor where you get to sample cokes from around the world. Uh-huh. And I just have to say. Every time we go, it is the grossest display of human behavior. <laughs> Just people like knocking shoving. each other over. <laughs> Grown women pushing young children out Give of me that the way Coke. so that they can try sugar. a sip. Yes. <laughs> it's just like it's unreal and I cannot. I just like I as soon as we get to that floor, I just I find a corner. And I stand in it, and I wait for the madness to be over. And you just whisper, Pepsi is better. Under <laughs> Soda's really bad for you guys. Soda's bad. It's rots your teeth. <laughs> How was your trip? My trip was lovely. It was like perfect weather. We went up to – I know. I realize that we're talking about this, and we didn't actually tell people where we were going because we don't want to jinx, jinx anything. Mm-hmm. Jen went to Portland. I went to Murphy, North Carolina, which is just a couple hours north of here. And it, it's beautiful. It really is. It's in the mountains. We went hiking. Uh, Max did gem mining twice, which for oh, some yeah. reason loves. Um, and we went to a beautiful winery. It was great. It was really just a nice, chill trip. 
Awesome, dude. Yeah, it was great. I'm glad so. we had fun. I'm glad Max had fun. Max had fun. Ben had fun. I had gems. fun. Good. Great. Yeah, God, he got so many gems. <laughs> he kept being like, Let me. he was like, mom, I'm so good at this. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, they like just give you, it's like you pay your money. And for like a they, brick of mud, right? Yes, with so like, like a brick of mud it. that is yeah. already pre-stacked with gems and then you just wash out the brick <laughs> the, mud, the mud and then it, you get to discover all the gems that you've mined and uh yeah, he was funny. He was like, I'm so I'm so good at this. <laughs> Don't take that away from him. I he didn't. Is I good was at like, it. I'm glad you are enjoying this. <laughs> awesome. uh, well, it's good to be back, you guys. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to give a quick shout oh, out yeah. to um we just got an email from a, a listener named Patty Kilo who Hi Patty. Um, Hi Patty. Thanks for writing in. She really loves the podcast. And Sally, I have to tell you. What? She really loved your zombie ant story. <gasps> yeah. Yes. One like, person. <laughs> some people like that shit. <laughs> Call Jen shocked. <laughs> some people are into nerd shit. Patty's into it. Sally's into it. No, it was the whole list. <laughs> and everybody else. Nobody else has said anything, which is, I think, shows you how <laughs> yeah. much people like it. I love when people actually contact us. It's so nice. Thank you, guys. I love it. Yeah. Let's get into our quickies. Okay. Let's do it. So I'll start this week. Um, My quickie is a quick quickie. It's very quick. Very, very, very (laughs) quick quickie. Um, It just spoke to me because um, I just traveled, as you know. Yes. And I was just through the airport and I went through security all this stuff. I will tell you, there was such a huge difference between going through this. Sorry, Atlanta. I'm shitting all over you today. (laughs) But there was such a difference between going through security through Atlanta and going through security at Portland. Oh, I told you how when I- Night and day. When I went through at Atlanta, in Atlanta, they made me go back through three times. Yeah, it's just like it was. It was so nuts, and I, I mean, I spent like it was almost two hours waiting in the line, and then they made me go back through all of these times because of little things that nobody told you what to do or how to do it, and they were just like so fed up. The with rules everyone. change yes. constantly, and it, it just going through the security in Atlanta just feels like like your dad yelling at you. Yeah, I, re- I was like I think for I like cry. Yeah, it's like I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. It's like no, this way. This way. This way. Take your shoes off. Put your shoes on. What are you doing? What are you, are you thinking? Yeah. Take out your laptop. Not that laptop. Not like this. Put it in another bin. Use this bin. You can't have three bins. It's like <laughs> I don't know. And then I was like it's just me and my two kids, so I'm yeah. trying to like figure out where to put all of their devices and the kids' rules are different than the parents' rules cuz then when I told my kids to take their shoes off they're like don't tell them to take their shoes off and I'm like I don't know why do I have to take my shoes off and they don't have to take theirs but anyway and then when we went to Portland um they were just like hey how you doing yeah no you don't oh, have to don't, take no don't take your shoes off don't leave are you tired <laughs> take a nap they were it was crazy but um even my kids were like whoa <laughs> That was different. Yeah, that but, was my experience in like in Albuquerque versus Atlanta. I was like, this is 
this doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have <laughs> it to be, be like better. this, Atlanta. <laughs> Why? You guys don't like yelling, and we don't like being yelled at. <laughs> We're just nice gals. Come on. <laughs> A Texas couple um, named Jared and Christy Owens who are flying from Las Vegas – oh, I'm sorry, from Texas to Las Vegas when they went through the security checkpoint, and they found something very interesting as – they were going through security. Um, what they found it wasn't drugs. It wasn't a gun. It wasn't a shampoo bottle that was more than three ounces. It was their tiny little chihuahua stuffed in a boot. What? <laughs> yes. His name was Iggy. He's so small. Like, and they were like, "Oh, he's a he likes to bury um, burrow and things. That's why he was." You know what? I'm not convinced. <laughs> the story is packaged like it's like, whoopsie, how did our dog get in there? Isn't that yeah. hilarious? We And then, you know, we took the dog home and we went to Las Vegas. But I think they were trying to smuggle that dog. You think they're trying to smuggle the dog? I think so. <laughs> I wouldn't want to leave that dog at home. It's too cute. It's too cute. It's too little cute. Icky. And it's little. <laughs> and I would have smuggled my dog had she been that small. Yeah. Totally I would have done that. I mean, but, your your bag would just have been a, like a wiggling, <laughs> fluffy <laughs> pile of Ruth. Like, right. You wouldn't have been able to. You could have been a very Ruth. hairy suitcase. <laughs> but who was who are they leaving their dog with? You know what I mean? Well, can I tell you, because I this is one of those times, this doesn't happen, it never happens, but I think it actually happened last time where we had the same quickie uh, or a couple times ago. No. But this, we did have the same quickie this time. So I can provide just a little bit of extra. Oh, because <laughs> I got mine from- You have better research. Mine no, is from NBC News. <laughs> Mine's from yours? the Washington Post. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they have three kids. They sh- she said they have they have two kids, three dogs, a rabbit, and a lot of fish. So her mom is taking care of- Christy's mom was taking care of all the kids and the pets. And so, and they said that their little dog, Icky, likes to burrow and she doesn't come out. She's like an old dog, so she doesn't oh. hear well. So she doesn't come out when they call her name. So they were like, we, you know, we we tried to say goodbye to her, but we just, it's not, it's not rare for her to like not be around. Mm-hmm. So, and that she was silent the whole ride to the airport. Okay. Yeah. So well, then you're changing my mind. All right. Well, and also, can I say one other thing is that they found her when... They were they their baggage was overweight. That's how they found her. Oh, so they were checking their bag. NBC, get your shit together. Yeah, they were checking their bag and they were like, you know, doing the thing where they're like, your bags are weight, and they're like, oh shit. So they're like trying to shuffle things in between two bags, and they open up the bag to like pull some stuff out so it won't be overweight, and then they find the dog. Oh, yeah. Well, talk about fake news, NBC. Right? You didn't give me. Any important. Now I look now I'm over here looking like a fool. <laughs> well, then I've done my job. <laughs> looking like a fool with my pants on the ground. Remember that? <laughs> okay, so okay. my quickie comes from a USA Today article by Connie McKinney and Jen. It yes. is a Halloween theme quickie because oh. we are in Halloween season and I'm disappointed in you. I don't honestly. even know what day any like, I'm so out of it, Sally. I know. Have you even put up your Halloween decorations? Yes. You yes. have? Yes. Okay. Whew. I'm not right. a monster. I did it on <laughs> September 30th. 
Okay. All but hope isn't lost. <laughs> I have been so busy lately. Like I don't even – yeah, I forgot. I should yeah. be doing – I can't believe I dropped the ball on Halloween-themed quickies. All right. Well, you have Glad next week. you were week. there to – Pick up the pieces. Yeah. Well, you're welcome since you sent me the story. Okay. Uh, okay. So this is about – Do you have you seen those – they were like 12-foot tall skeletons that people – sometimes people are like decorating with? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is a skeleton in this town in Indwell, New York that has become a huge hit in this town. And here's the story behind it. So it's this couple, Scott Varka DePayne and his fiance Samantha Dalaverde. Um, so last year, uh, in January 2020, Scott, who's an electrician, he was working at the middle school and, when he had an accident. And so he actually was like he had fallen off a ladder and nobody was around. But then one of the basketball coaches heard his screams for help and like basically saved his life. But oh, wow. since then, he's had to undergo multiple surgeries to help recover from the accident. And so his fiance was like, you know what? I'm going to, I want to do something. This is also like Halloween 2020. So like, let's do something to cheer you up. So she bought one of these 12 foot tall skeletons and put it in front of their home. And because they love decorating for the holidays, they were like, you know what? Let's just keep this out. It's like all the people who kept out last year, kept out their Christmas decorations. Right. They decided to um, put... Boris, as they call the skeleton, back out for Christmas. But this time they dressed him as a as the Grinch. Oh, that's and, so awesome! Yeah, and then the day after Christmas, the couple actually got an anonymous letter in the mail that was like from one of their neighbors. It was like Boris ruined my my Christmas. Oh, boo! It ruined your Christmas. Yeah. So then they were like, "Well, fuck you." So they wrote. Yeah. They put a sign out in front of Boris. They decided to keep him up year round, and they wrote, "Dear Karen, my name is Boris. I love." all holidays now, which I just think is so funny. They were like, oh, you hate this? We're keeping it the whole year. <laughs> so they put him in a different outfit every month. They put a different signs. Like at Valentine's, it said, dear Karen, I know you don't like me, but will you be my Valentine? So of course, people start like, you know, noticing it. this. They're coming yeah. and taking pictures. Boris gets social media. And so he now has fans from like Mexico, Spain, Italy, people all over the world are like, being cheered up. Um, That's amazing. Nothing brings people together more than spite. Right? You know? (laughs) They've started getting letters. Boris the skeleton starts getting letters. Um, Scott said, Boris gets more mail than we do. So the couple decided to use Boris in, you know, in addition to the spitefulness and just the fun of it, to use it as like something to help other people. Because Scott says, I'm I'm thankful I got a second chance at life and this is how I'm giving back to my community. So what they have done is they'll do, um, they started selling Boris t-shirts, bumper stickers, and other other items. And they have donated all the proceeds to a different charity every month. They're just like, they're doing good with this awesome skeleton. And then also some of the fundraisers have benefited um, the middle school where the coach that saved Scott's life. Oh, that's nice. Works. Yeah. And, and Samantha said, we're forever grateful for that coach of being aware of what to do and saving his life. We wanted to give back to the school and to him. Isn't that nice? That is nice. Yeah. So if you want to donate, we'll put that – we'll put a link in in the um, show notes. And And you can get a Boris the Skeleton bumper sticker. Awesome. And that story actually just reminded me just, you know, thinking of Neighborhood Spite. Um, There is a quick 
Night Clipper update. Night Clipper. <laughs> Set night. night. <laughs> <laughs> There's a quick update. Um, he's back. Mm-hmm. He's, he's clipping again, and this time he was clipping in the rain. So <gasps> there goes what? his whole your his, his ankles. whole morning dew defense of like, well, <laughs> my ankle got wet from your morning dew. Well, why are you clipping in the rain then? Yeah. Shouldn't you melt like the Wicked Witch? Yeah. Do you you know that my grandpa, when I was little, told me that grandparents are made of sugar and so that if they went out in the rain, they would melt? What? And I – like he was just joking, right? Like he was like, well, you know, grandparents can't go in the rain because we're made of sugar. And I believed him. Oh, my God. And was so scared because he was such a great grandpa. Oh, that's so him to get wet. <laughs> Did Maybe. you ever think that if you ate watermelon seeds, you'd grow a watermelon baby? No. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, will you? <laughs> no. I haven't tried because I've been terrified of watermelon seeds ever since my uncle told me that. Oh. Um, that's oh my god, that's so sad that you're. Well, it's funny. <laughs> it's but funny also now, sad but I was like, like no! it's one of those things. Like he probably said just like an offhanded comment, and it like stuck with me. Aww. Maybe the night clipper is made of sugar. Maybe he is. Maybe he had a grandpa who lied to him. And that's right? Why? Yeah. <laughs> night clipper. He's made of sugar. I love that update. I love anything you can tell me about the night clipper. I know. <laughs> Every time my one friend sends me this information, I'm always like, screenshots, yep. videos, <laughs> I need content, send it to me. The people demand the night clipper. <laughs> they really do, though. It is true. It is true. I know. Uh, it's so great. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for a crazy story this week? Yes. Are you ready for a crazy story that I made you wait an extra day to record because I was completely <laughs> unprepared? I needed. Jen? Yeah. You're letting them behind the curtain. <laughs> this is the magic of editing. Um, you guys are going from the past into the future today, and then when you get to the love story, back in the past. Back in the it's past. It's going to be crazy. It's going to Just... blow your mind. <laughs> so my story for this week – um, comes from an article for the New York Times written by Nina Berlay, an article for True Crime Daily, and also an episode of Dateline called Secrets and Lies. Ooh, sounds very mysterious. <laughs> yeah, it was because I feel like shouldn't they all be named Secrets and Lies? That's what I was just gonna say. Like, yeah, was this one Secrets and Lies when like unless it was like the it's like the first episode. No, it wasn't. I think it was like episode 100 and something something. If somebody was like, surely we've named one Secrets and Lies before. And then they checked back and they're like, no, all right, sweet. Like making up names like Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, which actually, <laughs> once you hear the story, that's probably a better name for it. <laughs> Liars. Um, okay. So um, Catherine Novak grew up in a working class family in um, Glendale, which is a neighborhood in Queens, New York. Sally, are you familiar with it? No, I thought um, you were going to say uh, I you were say in California. Yeah, no, um, it's like I guess a neighborhood of Queens. Yeah, I actually I never heard it. of it, but I definitely believe it exists. I believe Queens is huge. It is. It's huge. Like Long Island is Queens, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
I said it, and then I was like, that's not right. No. <laughs> Long Island is Long Island. Um, Whatever. You know what I mean? It goes all the way out there. Yeah, it does. It goes pretty far. <laughs> Catherine was the youngest of four children, and um, her family didn't really have a lot of money, but she worked really hard and put herself through uh, Marymount Manhattan College. Um, she would do accounting and other uh, jobs. The New York Times called her a quote-unquote semi-professional volunteer. Like she was one of those people that was always volunteering to help and do stuff. Oh, gotcha. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. And she would do stuff like clean up the schoolyard and decorate the church hall. And she was always like running blood drives. And she was just a help, a helping person. Yeah. Um, when she was 19, she joined the Ridgewood Volunteer Ambulance Corps. First, she became a dispatcher. Then she earned her EMT certificate. And then after that, she became a first a certified first responder. Um, she married another EMT whose name was Michael Ansbach, but after four years, they um, the marriage ended in divorce. And then in the summer of 1996, Catherine went to uh, a barbecue that was like for the ambulance corps. Uh-huh. So it was a bunch of people in her field, and that's where she met this tall man named Paul Novak. Okay. Uh, Paul Attila is his middle name, Paul Attila Novak, but um, he was just like this really tall, dark-haired, big dude with a beard, just like a real burly dude. And he, Paul was the son of – his mother was from Austria and his father was from Hungary, and they both immigrated to Queens during the Cold War. Um, he was their first and only child. Paul had been working for the Jamaica Hospital Medical Center, which is also in Queens, and he was one of um, considered to be one of the hospital's more seasoned dr- ambulance drivers. Okay. Um, they said he was like a really good medic, and that he had a reputation for being really brave. And he would and he would drive the ambulances really fast. Like he was a really good. A speed junkie, essentially. They said okay. that he used to like collect and um, put back together motorcycles to try to make them faster. Okay. Um, uh, so he, when he was known for being like the fastest e- uh, ambulance driver, essentially, yeah. he really um, growing up he was kind of shy, and he only had one serious girlfriend from high school who was also an EMT. They were engaged for a short amount of time and broke up, and she ended up marrying somebody else. Um, and then a few years later, his that this girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, ended up committing suicide. And Paul, being an EMT, heard the emergency call on the scanner and knew that it was her address. And then he was the one that ended up going and responding and fi- finding her oh. dead on the scene, which is <gasps> terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul and Catherine met at this barbecue and um, even though they're both EMTs, you know, and it seems like they have a lot in common, people said that the they the couple didn't really make sense to them. Like she was uh, very responsible. They said that she was frugal and you know was tight with money and and always just had her shit together and was always very um, by the books everything. But yeah. he was. Um, they said that he was always broke and he would like spend all of his money on wildly like on motorcycles and electronics and stuff. But on the Dateline episode, Paul said that he was drawn to Catherine immediately because she was so kind and they seemed to hit it off. And and Catherine really liked that sense of like, she felt safe around him because he was like a big guy who also his life career was to help people. 
you know? Right. So Which she is felt, what she wanted to do. Exactly. Um, so on Valentine's Day in 1997, they ended up getting married. But only just a year after they got married, Paul ended up filing for bankruptcy, which is crazy because Catherine was always so cautious about money. Right. Um, and she never had any debt before. But then in 2003, just you know, six years after they got married, she ended up filing for bankruptcy too. So there were definitely some problems within their marriage. Um, they had moved to Narrowsburg, which is in Sullivan County, which I believe is two hours north of okay. Manhattan. They bought like um, kind of a fixer-upper home, but it was like they wanted a house for their children. They ended up having a daughter named Natalie, and then they ended up having a son in 2003 named Nicholas. So they wanted to raise their children in the family because, you know, Paul being an EMT especially had commented on the Dateline episode that, you know, he saw the most horrific things happening in the city. Like, you know, right mm. two blocks from his house, you would see like murders and stabbings and whatever. And he was like, I just want to get my kids away from this. So they lived two hours away from where he worked. Um, So they lived in the country, but he would go to Queens. Sometimes he would spend the night there and he would spend the night uh, in Queens like three, four nights a week. So it was almost kind of like Catherine being the stay-at-home mom, living that single mom life, if you will. Yeah. Like single parent. You know, she was such like, a, like that single mom that life. Single mom. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like she got that single mom life without the days off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she was basically doing everything on her own and she was you know, a very doting and loving mom. She volunteered. Mm. She was the perfect mom. She volunteered at the school and um, she served on the school board. She was also a deacon at the Lutheran Church. According to the New York Times, she was a lifelong Girl Scout and she actually led her daughter Natalie's troop. So she was like a troop mom. She did all the things. Like I said, Paul was rarely ever home and he would um, spend most of his time in the city. And so, yeah. of course, their marriage was struggling. And then in the fall of 2007, Paul ends up meeting a woman named um, Michelle LaFrance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Michelle was like a young, hot 25-year-old. She was just finishing her um, paramedic certification program at Stony Brook University. Michelle was, was from Long Island. She was born and raised there. Her dad was an Avis car rental executive. Uh-huh. Um, but um, apparently she loved working on ambulances and had been volunteering on ambulances since she was a teenager. They said that she was also like a troubled person. Yeah. You know, she she had health problems and then she also was on a bunch of different medications, antidepressants, painkillers. At one point they said she attempted suicide. So she had she had some issues. So she met Paul when she was assigned to shadow him on the ambulance. Yeah. They were both what apparently there's this whole like underworld of ambulance drivers where <laughs> Uh, seriously, like apparently they're all like adrenaline, not all of them, that there's, but there's a whole like subculture of ambulance drivers that are like addicted to adrenaline. Yeah. I can then, imagine, right? Like it's like you do nothing, nothing, nothing. And then it's like the craziest couple hours yeah. of your life. Like you're in this awful situation. You're driving fast. You're somebody's oh, dying. Yeah. Yeah. And the New York Times article talks about how there's like sex in ambulances, there's drugs, they're doing like speed and shit. And like they, they really are. There's like a whole group of EMTs out there that they have access to all of these things. 
Yeah. And they're taking advantage of it because they're it's part of like their need for that adrenaline and drama. Yeah. You know what I mean? But there I'm sure there are many wonderful EMTs out there, including my cousin Michael. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Never had sex in the back of an ambulance. So far it, as we know. It sounds like Paul and Michelle were addicted to the the drama and the adrenaline because they snuck around and then they ended up having a full-on affair. In March, um, Paul ended up telling Catherine that he was leaving her for Michelle and he told her that he never loved her and then he ended up moving into Michelle's apartment um, on Long Island. Yeah, I know. And apparently there was a night where um, Michelle had actually called in the middle of the night asking for him. That's when she knew that she was having he was having an affair. So Catherine ended up filing for divorce, though she filed for divorce. But according to her friends, Catherine was like beside herself, devastated. Yeah, like they said, there was like months where she could barely catch her breath. She was crying so hard and was just completely devastated. But she picked up the pieces and she filed for divorce. And Paul agreed to pay her seventeen hundred dollars a month in child support and then he took the kids every other weekend even though Catherine tried to make it an amicable separation or divorce she actually even sat down with Michelle and had dinner with her to try to get to know this person because she knew that she was going to be taking care of her kids yeah um which is a hard thing to do but I understand you know why she would do that but Paul was terrible to Catherine. He would yell at her, call her a quote-unquote fat, ugly troll, a terrible mom. Um, they would fight all the time about money and about the kids. And Paul kept threatening that he was going to um, file for full custody of the kids. And and Catherine ended up working two part-time jobs. She worked at the school and a, a local church camp because she needed to be able to support the kids. And she also told people that she was trying to save for their college educations. Yeah. Um, she was trying to do the right thing, Catherine, and just move on with her life and work and just protect her kids and take care of her kids. And it seemed like Paul was making things very difficult for her and was fighting with her and to the point where two weeks after he moved out of the house, Catherine had a neighbor's husband come over and change all the locks to the house because it seemed like she was worried about him like oh. and felt threatened by him. Yeah. Um, and then on December 13th, 2008, um, it was a um, you know very snowy early morning in, um, in New York. Um, a neighbor woke up early to make coffee and then they looked out the window and they saw that Catherine's house was on fire and it was completely engulfed in flames. By the time that the fire trucks got there, the house had had completely collapsed. The neighbors called uh, Catherine. They couldn't get a hold of her. They called Paul to tell him that the house was on fire and they were like, where are the kids? Where are the kids? And luckily the kids were with Paul at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, at Paul and Michelle's apartment in New York. And then sadly, after a long search, they ended up finding Catherine's body on the basement floor, deceased. She was laying on her back and her arms were out stretched out. It seemed odd because they said that normally when people die in a fire, they tend to curl up in a fetal position. And yeah, so it was a little weird sense. that she was in a position where it didn't look like she 
died from a fire. Right. Um, but then also, sadly, their their family dog was also killed in the fire. And that is important to know because when so right away everybody was very suspicious about the fire you know they knew that her husband had just like left her for this for michelle and that um she had changed the locks and the dog was found locked away in the kennel in the house and they um all of her neighbors said she never had the dog in the kennel when she was home like yeah. why would she? You know, so the, right. like the neighbors reported that that was really suspicious. And then when examiners gave the dog an autopsy, autopsy, they saw that the dog had died of smoke inhalation, but Catherine had none. Yeah. And so you know, you breathe. She so basically they determined that she was dead before the fire. Yeah. Um, and they, but they also said that what it looked like had killed her because it looked like it wasn't the fire. It was debris that fell from from the fire had crushed her. They said that determined that that was the cause of death. Ultimately, the lead fire investigator said that Catherine's death was suspicious, but he couldn't prove that the fire was accidental. So that's what it was reported as, that she died from the debris falling on her. And then 10 days after the fire, of course, Paul was brought in for questioning, but he passed a lie detector test and he had an alibi because Michelle said that Paul was two hours away at the apartment in on Long Island with his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a few months after the death of Catherine Novak, he ended up collecting on $800,000 in insurance money. 500000 of it was from Catherine's death, and the other 300000 was the insurance money from the, the house being okay. burnt. Yeah. So with after they, he ended up getting the $800,000 in insurance money, he ended up quitting his job, and him and Michelle and his two kids moved to a fancy house in Palm Coast, Florida. So they bought like a big house with an in-ground saltwater pool. They moved there to basically start a new life. And Paul and Michelle got engaged at one point, but in, they never got married because they started to fight and they had uh-huh. problems. And then one day Michelle was suspicious that he may have been cheating on her. She saw that he was on Match.com and was talking to people. Yeah. And when she found out about it, um, she got angry and they they split up. So now, you know, he's dating this new person that he met on Match.com. But then one afternoon in April 2012, three years after Catherine's death, Michelle decides to call the New York State Police. Mm-hmm. And she told them that she wanted to tell, talk to them about Catherine's case. The police then flew to Florida to interview Michelle, um, who they ended up interviewing for more than six hours. And Michelle told them that um, Paul killed Catherine. She told them that um, he had convinced Michelle that throughout their relationship, he basically painted Catherine as like this terrible mother who was abusive and addicted to drugs, that he needed to get his kids away from her to save the kids. Like he kept telling Michelle, this is, I'm doing it, this for the kids, I'm doing this for the kids. And so she said that for like weeks he was researching on the internet, like how to chloroform her. He like came up with a plan that he was going to chloroform her, leave her, and burn the house down around her. She told the police that, you know, he had come up with this plan. And she even said that when he was at the house a few weeks earlier to get some 
last things that uh-huh. he purposefully like left the basement door unlocked. Ah, uh, so he could get in. Yeah. yeah. And so on the night of Catherine's murder, according to Michelle, she said that he entered Catherine's home through the basement, which set off a fire alarm, which made Catherine then walk, um, come down to the basement, you know, to see what was going on. Okay. He tried to chloroform her, but it didn't work because it was chloroform that they made at home. Yeah. yeah. And so it didn't work. So then they ended up, according to Michelle, she said that he had told her that they ended up fighting and they were physically like rolling around on the basement floor for like 45 minutes of him trying to overpower her and her fighting back. She said that the original plan was um, to, this is to quote her, she said, this was supposed to be quick and painless. And you know, she was supposed to be passed out before she knew what happened. But I guess he put it over his mouth and it didn't work. She was screaming and begging for her life. It's just like so awful. And then she said, and he told me the only thing he said to the in- to her the entire time that he was fighting with her was, I'm doing this for the kids. And he said that he had been, she had been wearing a hooded sweatshirt. And then he finally took the sweatshirt and wrapped around her neck and held it until she stopped breathing. To finish everything off, he ended up setting the home, the house on fire to cover all of his yeah. tracks. And then Michelle also told the police that there was someone that could corroborate her story because apparently Paul did not act alone. There was another person named Scott Sherwood that drove him to do this. So, like, Why physically drove him in the to car. Drive you? I don't Why know. Well, so I don't. I mean, not. I guess like. Why am I trying to get inside the mind? Well, I guess it was in? because he was trying to get somebody else's vehicle to oh, drive. So he has an alibi. Yeah. So his his car wasn't seen on. Right. Um, so Scott Sherwood was another EMT and he that he knew from the job. He was also a big dude. He was like six seven, but everyone said that he was kind of like a gentle giant, but that he also had a lot of emotional problems and drug addictions. Mm-hmm. So I think Paul knew that like this was probably the guy that could help him. Yeah. You know what I mean? So according to the New York Times writer, Nino Berlay, she said, Paul identified him as someone he could manipulate and asked him to drive him up to Narrowsburg on the night that he was going to start this fire at the house and get rid of his wife. So the cops, of course, bring Scott Sherwood out for questioning, and Scott corroborated the story. He said, I was driving, and we were driving up towards where the residence was, where Catherine still lived. He claims he drove Paul Novak to Narrowsburg and waited in his truck until Novak returned about an hour later, and then he said to him, it's done. Now, they, um, the police, you know, need to bring Paul Novak in for questioning. Yeah. Uh, and basically, they, ca- they called him in under false pretenses. They called him and told him that the Florida police called them and told them that, hey, um, we believe your car was involved in a hit and run. We need you to come down to the station and talk to us. But when he got there mm-hmm. and he saw that it was the um, same police officers from New York, from Catherine's case, he knew he was fucked. And so they brought him in for questioning. And of course, he denied everything, but he was arrested and charged with murder and arson. So during the um, trial, the prosecutors and their witnesses told the jury that on the night of Catherine's murder, Paul and Michelle were in their home in Glen Clove, which is in um, Long Island with the children. Michelle testified that she gave Natalie and Nicholas, the two children, each a Benadryl strip Uh um, to 
before bed to make sure that they slept throughout the entire night. Then Scott Sherwood arrived and all three of them sat together. Paul had all these different chemicals and a glass bowl and ice. I guess that was like how you make chloroform. And then- um, Or not. Or not. Yeah, because it didn't work. And then Scott drove Paul upstate and they stopped at a Walmart where Paul bought a a beanie cap, some duct tape, and a pair of suede gloves. And then Paul told Scott to park behind a barn about a mile from Catherine's house. Paul left and Scott sat in the car and waited for him. And then an hour later, Paul reappeared from the woods, peeled off a pair of scrubs, got back in the car and said, it's done. And then they drove off. Michelle testified. Scott testified. Scott's girlfriend also testified saying that um, because she was worried about him doing this um, and being an accessory to the murder. She had actually had a conversation with Paul where he was like, he's not going to get in trouble. He's not the one doing it. I'm the one that's doing, you know what I mean? So Uh she said that he like admitted to her that he was going to kill his wife. There was also another paramedic named Ed Palmer that testified that he overheard Paul telling Catherine over the phone, you may be the mother of my children, but I can still kill you. And he said that he ended up leaving the room to give him some privacy, like, because he was like, oh, that's an intense conversation. And then he left. And then a lot of Paul's colleagues all testified saying that that he talked about how much he hated Catherine all the time. They said that there was this one um, paramedic, Willie Gonzalez, said that one time when he was riding an ambulance with Paul, Paul was going through his computer. Suddenly, he, like, looked up and said, you know how to commit the perfect crime? And um, he said, and I'm looking at him and first taken aback. And I said, no, how? And then Paul goes, fire, get rid of the evidence. And then he said he was like, okay. And so mm-hmm. then the final piece of evidence, besides all the testimony, so basically all they have right now are just they're going off of – they have no real evidence, like physical right. evidence. They just have testimonies. But then they were able – the police were able to look through, you know, when you drive through tolls? Yeah. Well, when he went through the um, toll on the George Washington Bridge in Scott's car, they were able to see a picture of Sherwood's license plate um, going through it. So that corroborated their story as well. But of course, the defense attorneys are saying that there's no proof that he was in that car. Right. Because like, all you have is just Paul's li- or yeah. Scott's license plate. Yeah. But after much uh, deliberation on September 27, 2013, the jury found Paul Novak guilty on all charges, including first and second degree murder, arson, burglary, grand larceny, and insurance fraud. And he will be in jail for the rest of his life. And Michelle LaFrance got a plea deal and she walked away with nothing. Yeah. So she didn't have to serve a day, but like she admittedly knew for years about this murder and even helped make the chloroform. Right. And so people are really pissed that Michelle is walking away with serving no time at all. But as they say, you know, sometimes you have to go with the lesser of the two evils or the greater of the two evils, I guess, in this case. And then there are people that still – there's a lot of people out there that think that Paul is is innocent. And that Michelle and this other guy did it? Or that Michelle was just a scorned mistress that made this shit up because he didn't want her anymore and made up this crazy story. But oh, really? Yeah. That seems far-fetched. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. So yeah. 
so he's in jail and he'll be in jail for the rest of his life. But there's a lot of people that are out there like fighting for his, for him to be freed because they don't think that he did it. I think that he did it. That's what my instincts are telling me. And we should always just go with what my instincts are. (laughs) (laughs) Trust your instincts, obviously. But there is some room. There is some room there for it to be questionable, you know? Yeah. So this is one of those stories. Yeah, secrets and lies. Secrets and lies. Liar, liars, pants, pants on, on fires. fires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good one, dude. Thanks, man. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. You ready for a love story? I'm always ready for a love story. All right. So I got my information from the Washington Post by Les Carpenter, from NBC by Stephen Luke, from USA Today by Scott Gleason, from The Guardian by No One, and from the <laughs> no Instagram, one. no one. I looked. There were no. It's just. I think it was just ghost written. Ooh, Ooh. spooky Halloween. <laughs> um, from the Instagrams of Alice and Sam Willoughby. Okay, so when Sam Willoughby was 11 years old, he was already a rising BMX racer in Adelaide, Australia, and he was watching this DVD, which shows you how long ago this was, um, of a championship BMX races from the US, and he notices this girl who's like close to his age, who's racing, and she's like winning the race, and also, according to the 11-year-old Sam, she was real cute because he Aww. remembers that she was wearing a choker necklace. So obviously, she was also Which is very really cool. cool. Yep. <laughs> and so he checks out the DVD cover and he sees that her name is Alice Post and she's from St. Cloud, Minnesota. And so Alice was indeed, he was right. She was a cool girl. She had started writing BMX bikes when she was six years old. And she, at that time when she was 11, she was already winning amateur championships um, all around the country when she was just a preteen. And so Sam looked her up on MySpace and kind of kept track of this cute girl who was also racing like throughout the years. So they like, they both continued to race um, and both eventually became their countries, like him in Australia and her in the U.S., their top teenage racers. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So soon they both made their national teams and started appearing at the same international competitions. And in 2006, they're both 15 years old and they were at the same place at the same time at this race in Brazil and a mutual friend introduced them. And so even though Alice had never heard of Sam, Sam knew exactly who Alice was. He was like, this is the girl I've had a crush Aww. on for years. And so the two hit it off, but they didn't actually talk again until the next year when they were once again at the World Championship in China. And after that race, they became official friends on MySpace and they never stopped talking. The crush was like finally mutual. And Sam jokes that he worked his way into her top eight, which is a MySpace re- reference <laughs> for those of you who are too young for MySpace. Did you do, did, were you on MySpace? Oh, yeah. I was on MySpace. Yeah. I was, like, briefly on MySpace. I mean, I was, like, a, a, like an adult, like, in law school by the time I joined MySpace. So I was never, like, super into it. And I just remember I didn't really understand the top eight. And so I just hit it on random. Like, I just what said it. top eight? It's like you would go to somebody's Facebook page and it would be, like, their top eight friends. And oh. you could set your top eight. And it seemed like a big deal to be in the top eight. I don't think I ever did that. 
Yeah, I didn't either. So mine was like set to random. And I remember this comedian, um, his name's Mike Cody, who's actually is one of my like best friends now. But at the time, I See, like, didn't. manifested it. I manifested. I didn't even know. I mean, I barely knew him, but we were friends on MySpace. And I, I met him in person. It was like, I didn't know him. We met him in person. He was like, oh, I was surprised to see that I'm in your your top eight friends. That's really nice. Like, he was very sweet about it. But I think he was uh-huh. just like, who is this random girl? <laughs> like putting me in her top eight and I was like oh it's just it's just randomized and he was like oh okay good is there a Facebook top eight now I'm like what else am I fucking up I don't think so um I don't think so I always worry about like when you know when you go on like scroll through Instagram and sometimes you accidentally save photos Oh yeah. Do you I ever do that? Time. Yes. Did people get alerted? <laughs> I don't think so. I just have a whole folder of random people shit that I saved on accident. Yes. Oh, same. Okay. Same. Good. <laughs> I'm always yeah. like afraid that someone's gonna be like, "Why do you keep saving my picture? Why did you save the picture of my my, of my baby?" baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real cute baby. <laughs> I like your baby. Um, okay. So anyway, so MySpace, he worked his way into their top eight. And so Alice trained in St. Cloud, Minnesota at the BMX track that her dad owned. And so a few months after Sam and Alice started talking, Sam told Alice that he wanted to come to the U.S. to train. And so Alice asked Sam to come to Minnesota to train at her family's facility. And it was only after he said yes that she told her parents, she was like, oh, yeah, this racer I know from Australia is going to come live with us. And this wasn't like really an abnormal thing. Like I think that a lot of times like different racers would come train at their facility and live with the family. But Alice's father jokes now, um, he said, she said he was just a friend. But here comes this Australian boy with a big smile on his face when I open the door and I'm saying, yeah, right. (laughs) So the two soon started dating. They're training alongside each other. Like Alice actually used to bring – It's like the movie Rad. It's just like Rad. And like (sighs) Alice used to bring Sam to lunch at high school like when when he was living there. I guess maybe he had graduated already in Australia. But um, so then when Alice went to college, uh, she went to the University of San Diego and Sam moved to California with her. They got an apartment together and then a few – few years later, they bought a house that was like kind of right across from their training facility. Um, they both continued to dominate the BMX scene. Now they were professional racers. In 2012, they both qualified for the London Olympics. Sam ended up winning a silver medal, but Alice crashed in the medal race and didn't place. And Aww. like, and crashing like in BMX biking is kind of inevitable at some point in a writer's career. Apparently they said, especially when it's like the finals for an Olympics or the world championship, because you have like the best racers who are like the most aggressive that crashes happen a lot in those races. And so actually over her career, Alice would have injuries like a broken fibula and tibia ankle and knee ligament damage and several hand surgeries. So it's like, she was no, no stranger to like injuries. Yeah. Sam and Alex continued to date and race. And then when Alice's mother, Cheryl died in 2014, just months after she had been diagnosed with stage four melanoma, Sam was almost as distraught as Alice. Um, they both actually, after that, raced with Cheryl's name on their bikes. Aww. Yeah, isn't that sweet? Yeah. Um, and sad. Sweet and sad. In December of 2015, eight years after Sam had moved to the U.S. to train with his 11-year-old crush, Sam got down on one knee and proposed. 
they were both headed to the 2016 Olympics in Rio, and so they planned their wedding for the spring of 2017. And although Sam was favored to win a gold medal for Australia in that Olympics, like right before the Olympics started, he tore his ACL, and he ended up riding in in the Olympics with a torn ACL, and he finished sixth. Alice, however, ended up winning a silver medal. And they were both, they were so excited for her. Yeah. So she was on a high. So after her win, Alice flew back home to Minnesota to do kind of like a victory tour. She was hosting a charity event. Um, You know, she was a US silver medalist. So it was a huge deal when she came back home. And Sam, meanwhile, after the Olympics, decided to go back to their house in California, kind of lick his wounds a bit and train. And so they were apart for a little bit, not like nothing wrong with the relationship, just she was doing her thing, he was doing his thing. And then on September 10th of 2016, Sam went to the track that was across the street from their house for a workout. He was warming up when he rode into a row of small jumps. He was distracted and he said he had his weight shifted too much on the back wheel and he his bike ended up flipping upside down in the air and he landed on the top of his head. Oh god. Um, yeah. So this was a Saturday there happened to be kids at the track practicing and oh one of man. the kids dad was an EMT. So the dad runs over to Sam and Sa- Sam says he remembers touching his toes, the guy touching his toes and his legs and his chest. And when he touched him, Sam said he felt like he was wearing a wetsuit filled with water. So he couldn't really feel it. He knew something was very wrong. And the EMTs called a helicopter because they were worried that the road would be too bumpy um, with his injury. And so Sam was immediately taken into surgery. Alice flew home from Minneapolis and arrived at the hospital just as Sam was waking up from a surgery. And the doctor came in and told them that Sam had broken the C5, C6, and C7 bones on his vertebrae and that he would never walk again. I know. So Sam looked at Alice and he just in that moment and told her, you aren't marrying me. And yeah, I know. Sam says at the time he's like looking at his fiance. She's 25 years old. She had just won an Olympic medal. And he was like, I just can't stand to think of making her live a life of caring for me. Oh. Oh. So Alice knew Sam was in pain and and that he just he would like couldn't imagine himself becoming a burden, but she was determined to stand by him. And after the surgery, Sam was moved to a rehab hospital in Colorado. Alice went with him. She was there every day. She barely left his room. And then 4 months later, on January 1st, 2017, the two moved back home, moved back to their home in San Diego. But it was a really hard, it was really hard for both of them. Alice understood why Sam was having such a hard time. She said, I think it's easy to self-bully yourself at that point because being a pro athlete, you're in the public eye. And what are you known for? Being a BMX rider. Everywhere we went after the accident, people weren't asking him how his day was. They were asking him how his recovery was going. It kind of goes down to kind of goes down to sympathy versus empathy. And Sam fell into a depression. He hated that he couldn't function in their house. They had to get an an elevator so that he could go upstairs to their bedroom. And he just was like, he just, he resented all of these changes that they had to make. And he couldn't, he like wouldn't go out anymore because he was worried about like, like, would he be able to get into the bathroom or would I be able to get into a place in my wheelchair? He ended up losing 40 pounds. He started relying on Alice for like many of his day-to-day needs. Um, Sam says, it was definitely an identity crisis. I dealt with the insecurity of it for about a year. I didn't want to go anywhere. I felt useless and like I had no independence. Like I was this burden to to Alice. 
At that point, all I cared about was walking again. I was nothing if I couldn't walk. And Alice was having a hard time too. She couldn't focus during rides, and it was like, which is like especially dangerous, right? So she kept falling during practices, and she kind of thought like maybe I should quit. She ended up like, um, like firing her coach, and kind of was thinking like of leaving BMX altogether. And Sam was like, you know, he was pushing her away. She told the Washington Post that one day. She ended up snapping at Sam when he was worrying about being a burden to her, and she shouted, "If my dad could have my mom back alive in a wheelchair, I know he, I know what he'd do to have that." Aww. She says, "Like the memory of that moment still makes her cry because she was like, my mom was just fifty three when she passed away, and it all happened in like nine months. And my dad, you know, he didn't sign up for that either. Nobody signs up for the stuff." But they're there for the person and and everything else. Like, and it's like, I don't know how to explain it, but there's never enough time. Why would I cut that time short? So they end up postponing their spring wedding. And knowing that they they were kind of in a crisis moment, Sam's brother Matt came from Australia to help. He knew that Sam needed to get out of the house and that Alice needed a break. So he ended up getting them tickets, Sam and him, tickets to a NASCAR race because Sam loved car racing. And when they got to the race, a friend introduced them to some of the drivers, as well as this man named Booty Barker, who was a crew chief um, for one of the drivers. And he also happened to be in a wheelchair. And so Booty asked Sam how things were going. And Sam was like, well, I'm just really focused on walking again. It's all I'm doing. I'm just doing recovery. And Sam said he remembers Booty being like, great, then what? And Mm. Sam had no answer because, you know, Booty had been paralyzed in a car accident. He knew what Sam was going through, but he basically told him, like, it's great to have this goal, but, like, what you got to live your life now as it is. So what are you going to do after you can walk? Or if you and if you can't walk, what will that mean for you? Mm. So Sam says, I had this newfound motivation to be independent. It was just something that clicked. The first time I met someone who's actually living life and was giving me this whole new world of advice, just do whatever you want, try it and find a way. And so Sam did. He decided he needed a purpose and he thought he knew what it should be. So a few weeks after he met Booty Barker, he asked Alice what she would think if he became her coach. And since she had split with her own coach, she had kind of been floundering with biking. She knew that Sam would be good at it. He had always been the one between the two of them to spend hours breaking down their races. He had a really analytical mind. He kept these details lists of data um, of their races. And so she said yes. And then with Sam at her side coaching her, her racing career turned around. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Sam knew that Alice, who was like smaller than most racers, needed to add power to her rides to be more competitive. So he started designing harder workout training and um, so that she could power her way past other riders. And her nickname became The Beast because she's like so little and powerful. Uh And so Alice said, the more Sam fought and rebuilt his identity, the more it inspired me to rekindle my love for the sport. She said, his perspective on life has become what motivates me deep down. He doesn't play BMX for a second. Instead, he sees it he sees it was this it was sport that's helped him have the work ethic to embrace life and push forward. He can find the best in any situation. After that, their relationship got easier too. On December 31st, 2017, a year after Sam came home from the hospital, Alice and Sam got married. And Sam Aww. did end up training very hard and he walked down the aisle 
and danced at their wedding. Um, he's still in a wheelchair, but it was something like he said he felt like he needed to do something symbolic. He said, I didn't want any robotic assistant. I didn't want to be Alice got stuck with Sam. I wanted her to get what she signed up for when I got down on one knee. And Alice, when he said this was so emotional, she said, I told him it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to marry him. But knowing how much he loved me to just get to that point just showed me what I always knew. We were meant to be together. So, yeah. So when he did walk, but it still stuck with him that when Booty Barker asked him, I I feel so weird. It's so weird and like a a sweet story to be calling someone Booty, but that's his name. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> is when, it spelled B U? I thought it was B U D I. It's B O O T I E. Oh, like real booty. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when old Booty asked old him, Booty Barker, old Booty Barker, uh, I think he's from Texas. I don't know. Um, so when he asked him what was come next. After he walked, Sam now had the answer. He was a coach. He ended up coaching Alice to two world championships, and she was actually favored for gold in Tokyo. Um, Unfortunately, she ended up crashing in the semifinal race, but she didn't give up on that either. In that race, after she crashed, she picked herself up, she got back on her bike, and she pedaled across the finish line. And Alice actually wrote of her Olympic journey on Instagram um, she said, and just like that, it's done and dusted. I'd be lying if I said I was feeling anything but heartache in this moment with how the race day unfolded, but I remain beyond proud of the effort and preparation we put in. I gave everything I had. It was just not my day. That's racing. That's sport. That's life. I stand by everything Sam and I have said all along in that no result defines our careers or us as a people. It's been all about the journey. That's Aww. it. That's a good one. It's a really good story. That's a nice story, right? I know. I just like one of my favorite movies is uh, Rad. And oh, so yeah. I just keep or growing up, but probably as an adult too. Yeah. But <laughs> I just keep, I can't wait to see pictures of them because in my head, I'm just picturing like Crow Jones and Lori Laughlin's character. Yeah, well, they're real cute. Aww. They're real cute, yeah. And Aww, badass. Oh, God, they so. got married. Yeah, they got married. They've like, you know, they're both, they like coach youth BMXing and and yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's cool. I love it. My friend Krista, um, who listens to the podcast. Hi, Krista. Hi, Krista. Uh, her son and nephew race BMX and they're so good at it. And her son, um, Hank, is like, he just wins. He's so tiny. Yeah. There is young, but he keeps winning all of these races like one after another. It's adorable. That's all yeah, Dr. Dudefuck's son, oldest son, Arlo, does races BMX. And actually, kind of crazy, like reminded me of what happened with this. Like she was he was doing he was like had a BMX race um the other day, and she said there were a couple of like teenagers at the track who were like kind of fucking around. And they didn't have helmets on, and they crashed. And you know, she's a doctor, and so she actually like oh, like wow. ran over, and like one of them like maybe had a concussion, like couldn't see. So she like helped him out and got whatever, and and got them the guy to the um like called the MTs and all of that. I mean, he wasn't paralyzed, but um, I just was like, man, how cool is that that your kids got to see you like saving the day and being like, you know. 
a cool badass doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and, how, and also how, how lucky for those kids that you were there, like for the teenagers that crashed. Also, how cool is it going to be when your kids realize that we call her Dr. Dude Fuck? <laughs> Dr. Dude Fuck. <laughs> that's, like, that's so funny to think about that. Like what if like your whole life you didn't know until you were, well, until you were like, you know, 20 and you realized that people called your mom Dr. Dude Fuck. <laughs> Revelation. I can't wait to be the one to tell them. Oh, that's all you, Sally. That's <laughs> <Yep>. so awesome. <laughs> Dude. Good story. Should we do um, something dumb and something we love? Yeah, you go first. Okay. Well, I guess my something – I'm going to go in reverse. Uh, okay. So something I loved this week is I really loved Portland. Yeah. Listen, Atlanta, I love you too. I just needed a little break. Yeah. I needed to be away from you for a while. And Portland <laughs> is so beautiful. I had the best time. Um, I really loved how, like, family-friendly it was, too. Uh-huh. And, like, there were so many awesome places for us to eat outside with the kids that were all, like, really good places to eat and all these really cool, like, food truck parks. We just don't have stuff like that here. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there are, but not not, like, as, like, laid back and neighborhoody as it was – yeah. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's easily accessible. So great time. Kristen, I love you. Thanks for having me. Um, and then um, that my something dumb was leaving Portland. Yeah. <laughs> and it was – and just saying goodbye to my friend Kristen again. So it's like having to say goodbye all over again. Yeah. You know, it's sad. But it, I'm so glad that we got to have those fun days together. And I can't wait to go back. Yeah. That's awesome. I would really want to go to Portland. Okay, so for my something dumb, um, so I mean, this isn't dumb, but la- on Monday it was my would have been my mom's Tuesday, yeah. would have been my mom's birthday, and you know, I think it's we every people who have lost parents or lost anyone, you know that like you know it's been almost two years since my mom died, and it's just I you know I think about her all the time, but I don't it I don't feel like actively sad all the time, but it really was like hit me hard of like, whoo, I like the day before I was just like, I'm just feeling really sad about this, you know? But um, I ended up like, you know, Ben's so nice and perceptive. He was like, why don't you just go? Like I had already taken the day off. He was like, why don't you just get out of here? Like go get a hotel, go do what you want. And so it was just really nice. I like, I went to my pottery class, which I really love. And I went um, up back up to the North Georgia mountains and did a big hike and, Um, was just like able to kind of like it was really nice to like have time to like think and reflect and think about my mom and um, and then when I got home I like took Max out to get cupcakes because those were like my mom's favorite and we talked about my mom and then I had a zoom um, that night on her birthday with my brothers and sister-in-law and it was just like really nice like we all you know we, we talk often, but we don't always talk about my mom and like really reminisce. And that was nice to like take the time to do that. And we had like a little, you know, a little cheers for her and in her memory. And so that's the thing I love is just that like, you know, it is it, even though it made me sad, it's nice to take time to reflect. And yeah. Um, and yeah. And then I love that. That's really, I love that. I love, th- I love how you really took the time to honor her and think about her and celebrate her because yeah. I don't I feel like a lot of people don't don't do that and yeah I, think it's I mean really I think important. I've, yeah I've been you know kind of 
just full forward, you know, like full speed ahead. Like, mm-hmm. so it was nice. Yeah, it was nice to be like, actually take time now. And I'm grateful for Ben for suggesting and taking, you know, taking the parenting load so that I could do it. Good so. guy, Ben. Good guy, Ben. Good guy, Good job, ben. ben. He's the best. The best. He's the best. Yeah. Um, All right, guys. Well, thanks for letting us take a week off. You know, go do our stuff. And I hope you guys had a wonderful week. Um, You can, uh, you know, hit us up. We would love to hear from you, obviously. You can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you know, TikTok, wherever. We're everywhere. You can see us at the Red Clay Comedy <gasps> Festival uh, November 5th and 6th in East Atlanta. Come yes. see Sally perform. Come see me run around and I'll come give you a big hug. Yeah. Um, and we would love to see you there. You can get tickets at redclaycomedy.com. Yes. Um, do that. Do that's all, our number one. That's our number one ask. Yeah. Week. Let's do come that. Yeah. And then also um, make sure you get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum